Hello and welcome to today's edition of the fight against COVID-19. What's really going on? A CGTN radio podcast that brings you everything you need to know about the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Yu Tianyu. In this edition, we will look at how low hospitalization rates and increasing uptake of vaccines helped China prepare before reopening. A senior U.S. expert says conditions are in place for lifting COVID restrictions in China. The comments follow the relaxation of a string of measures as COVID is now a Class B infectious disease in the country. For more, Do Hongyu spoke with Jay Wolfson, professor of public health, medicine, and pharmacy at the University of South Florida. Professor Wolfson, China's full vaccination rate had reached 90% by the time it relaxed its COVID policies. And as we know, the Omicron variant is getting less and less lethal. But there has been a wave of infections in China, and some people say it might not be the right time for China to lift its COVID restrictions. What is your take? Well, this has been the experience of almost everybody in the world with COVID and each one of its variants. There have been periods during which there have been high rates of infection, followed by a period of apparent quiet, and then a variant occurs and there is another rate of infection. I think China has been part of uh, an international experiment learning to live with COVID. And we have all tried to address it in different ways as we learn more from the data. It's only been three years, which is not a long time, and we've all made tremendous progress in understanding how the disease works. But one thing is important, several things are, but one in particular, and that is the rate of infection alone, while important information, is not the same as the death rate or the hospitalization rate. And as many of the variants may be more infectious, they may not be as virulent, as harmful. Uh, And as long as the vaccination rate and or the natural immunity rate from having had the disease continues to grow in the population, the likelihood of people getting very sick or dying is mitigated by the fact that we do have increasingly higher vaccination and natural immunity rates. So the most important thing I think we all need to do, whether we're in China or in the United States, is make sure that we have fundamental public health processes in place to conduct surveillance on a regular basis, to see where and how the disease is spreading, to see how virulent it is. We know how the disease is spread. uh, And we also know now more than we did two and three years ago, how to manage the disease. So the key is good quality information, good education, good public health measures, uh, and making sure that we distinguish between the cases of positive uh, disease and things that progress beyond that, for example, for the immunosuppressed populations, possibility of hospitalization, and for the very compromised, the possibility of death. China is among the last countries in the world to lift its COVID restrictions. And we've seen a national response to the latest surge of COVID cases all across the country. And the government has strived to stabilize medical supplies in the country through its rapid national coordination. How would you evaluate China's steps to deal with the latest surge of cases? I think China has an advantage of having a a very well-developed 
information and political mobilization system where information can be spread very quickly and decisions can be made and implemented very quickly. Uh, I also think that China, as the rest of us, have learned as we go about how to better manage this disease. Resources to care for people, resources, hospital resources, clinic resources, medication resources, remain an issue for all of us during spiking periods. So I, I think it's, again, a matter of ensuring that we have a surveillance and public health foundation system in place so that we can try to get ahead of where the disease is going. It's kind of like we say when, when people play the, the, the ice hockey game, you want to get in front of the puck uh, to see to make sure that you can control it. Uh, I think we're learning how to do that better. China has a much larger population than most other nations, uh, and it has taken a different policy position from the beginning, but now it's facing some of the same challenges that those other nations that have uh, did, did not try to contain and control the disease the same way China did. Uh, but China has the advantage again now there's a high rate of immunization. The variants are not as lethal. And it's a matter of managing those resources, obtaining reliable, quality public health information, educating the population, and making sure that resources are available in terms of clinical staff, nurses, physicians, therapists and facilities when people do get sick. That is a resource allocation and logistical challenge that we all face. There have also been concerns that the outbreak in China could create new variants. How would you see this possibility? Well, the outbreak in any country can create a new variant. It's the nature of this disease. We're seeing new variants spring up in the United States, in, in England, in South America. Uh, we know that in populations that are not well vaccinated or that have not had high rates of natural immunity, the variant has a the, the the virus has a natural tendency to quickly mutate, but this virus has mutated routinely from time to time. It's a very smart little virus, uh, and even when we throw vaccines at it, uh, it tends to pivot a little bit. There are increasing numbers of cases of vaccinated people, fully vaccinated people, who get reinfected once, twice, sometimes three times. Uh, so. The extent to which we can ensure that the virus is contained is still a bit of an unknown. China tried an experiment by attempting to contain the entire nation, and it had some important positive results. We've learned a lot from that, as we've learned a lot from countries that have not. We still have to continue to learn from what we have done. And there's a residual to all of this, and that is regardless of the variant, and we know that it will mutate. And sometimes we can predict the mutation as we do with influenza. In some cases we've not been able to with this. One of the characteristics of this virus is that it embeds in organ tissue, heart, lung, liver, kidney, brain, and skin. And for some percentage of all people get the disease, even if they do not have symptoms, even if they're asymptomatic, some percentage of everybody who gets this disease is going to have a post-infection chronic syndrome event. Brain fog, uh, respiratory distress, kidney disease, uh, or things uh, that are going to last for a long time, sometimes called uh, long COVID. And we're just beginning to learn about this. So even though the virus may mutate and it's naturally mutating, it's important that we shift our focus a little bit away from the acute symptoms and look at the longer term effects of all those individuals who are getting the disease 
because that's going to have a long-term effect on our healthcare system, on the productivity and wellness of our populations. And we're just beginning to do that. Um, the XBB 1.5 subvariant is now taking over the United States. Uh, from your observation there, compared with former subvariants, what new impacts and challenges does this subvariant bring to the health system and the society? Well, it, it may require that we modify the vaccine again, which is what we do with influenza every year. And because of the misinformation about vaccines in some of our communities, uh, there will be a question as to whether or not some people will, will want to get booster shots or get revaccinated, leaving them vulnerable. What may be good news is that these subvariants, while they appear to be uh, very contagious, may not be as lethal as virulent, as powerful in terms of hurting people as the previous variants had been. And given the fact that we have a very high combination of vaccination rate and natural immunity, the likelihood of people getting sick or very sick is reduced and the likelihood of people dying is reduced. What we do have to worry about are those people who do get sick enough, either because they've not been vaccinated or they've not had the disease, or because they have comorbidities, they have multiple illnesses, or they have some type of uh, immunosuppressed state that makes them more likely to get it, even if they have been vaccinated. And then we have hospitals and clinics that have resource restrictions on how many patients they can care for. All of our countries are facing that challenge. The good news, of course, is that we know how to manage and care for people with the disease better than we did. And once again, I have to go back to fundamental public health practices of surveillance, monitoring, management, reporting, educating, and making sure we have good quality data to see where the disease is going, how it's going, and whether or not a new strain may be more virulent, not necessarily more contagious, but more virulent than previous strains. How would you evaluate the current COVID pandemic around the world, and where is it going? Many epidemiologists and public health professionals believe that we have entered what's called an endemic stage of this disease, where it has kind of settled down and has become more of the common landscape uh, in our communities. That's not to say that people aren't going to get sick and die. You know, 70 to 90,000 people a year die in the United States of influenza. Uh, there are other diseases, uh, infectious diseases, uh, for which people get you know, very sick and die. So it looks like it is entering that phase where variants of the COVID are going to become part of the landscape of the diseases in our communities for which we will have to either uh, develop routine vaccines or it, to the point where it diminishes its virulence and strength and it becomes more like the common cold, though it probably will look more like influenza and will still hurt people. So the endemic character of this disease is that we will learn to live with it the danger, though, is if we say it's really not a problem and I don't have to worry about it because immunosuppressed individuals and people with multiple morbidities and if we don't watch the way the disease changes, the way the virus changes and how it affects high-risk people, we run the risk of spikes in those things that we don't want. The deaths and the hospitalizations are the measures from a public policy perspective that capture the attention of most of our leaders. When lots of people just get sick, we still have to have some place to put them and they lose time at work and they might infect their friends and their, and their relatives. But a, an infection rate alone 
without a severe illness and a death rate becomes more like a severe cold or common influenza. That's the direction it appears we're heading at this point. That was Professor Jay Wolfson on China's downgrading of COVID management and the XBB 1.5 variant in the United States. The Foxconn facility in Zhengzhou is operating at full power and at full capacity. Current production has returned to the peak season level. Zhou Yixing reports from the factory in Zhengzhou. In the Zhustar Logistics Park within the Zhengzhou Xinjiang Comprehensive Free Trade Zone, workers are delivering materials and parts to various production workshops of the Foxconn facility. At the same time, batches of smart devices are packed and shipped and sent to consumers all over the world. We are responsible for the import and distribution of all mobile phone production parts of the Foxconn facility in Zhengzhou. Currently, the daily incoming materials volume has reached more than 180 vehicle trips, and the delivery to the production workshop has reached more than 240 vehicle trips, a historical peak. Since December, the Foxconn facility in Zhengzhou has optimized processes to ensure timely and sufficient supply of materials. In the mobile phone mainboard production workshop, workers complete the bounding of all electronic components required for communication functions. Due to strict assembly process regulations, the mobile phone assembly line requires the most manpower. Take this production workshop as an example. There are about 2,000 people in this workshop. There are dozens of workshops operating at full capacity in the entire factory area, and more than 100 million products are produced here every year to meet the needs of customers all over the world. The Foxconn facility in Zhengzhou is responsible for nearly 80% of Foxconn smartphone production capacity in China. At present, it is the peak season for corporate orders, and the factory has reached a normal staffing level. That was Zhou Yixing reporting on the recovery of production at a Foxconn factory. Tourist destinations are making preparations to welcome Chinese visitors. Singapore says it will not impose pre-departure COVID tests on travelers from China. Mira Lu has more. The Singapore being a transportation hub already benefited from the global travel rebound last year, but Chinese tourists, the single largest contributor to global tourism, were missing in 2022. So China's reopening from January the 8th is going to give a tremendous boost to global tourism, particularly to countries like Singapore. Based on the data from Singapore Tourism Board, China was Singapore's top inbound market pre-pandemic. China was also the top contributor to Singapore's tourism receipts generating 900 million Singapore dollars or more than 676 million US dollars in 2019. Despite the fact that Chinese tourists are not back in full swing just yet, many establishments here have already started planning. We actually visited Sofitel Sentosa. The GM told me that uh, they are already preparing special Chinese New Year packages with hot pots, spas and family-friendly activities. Singapore has not planned any additional testing or restrictions specifically on Chinese tourists. As long as travelers have taken the minimum WHO required COVID vaccine dosage, Singapore does not require testing or quarantine. Singapore's health minister Ong Kong said Singapore's greatest worry is the emergence of a new, unknown and more dangerous variant of concern like everybody else from anywhere in the world. So testing all travelers from China alone will not help to detect this. That was Mira Lu reporting. 
With that, we end this episode of the fight against COVID-19. What's really going on? Subscribe to our podcast for another episode filled with facts, stories, and opinions concerning the global battle against the novel coronavirus. For more detailed stories about the pandemic, visit radio.cgtn.com or listen to our current affairs program, The Beijing Hour, online. Drop us a line on our podcast so we can provide you with even more content that interests you. I'm Yu Tianyu. Thanks for listening.